Hi everybody, I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. along with my brother Rick. This is Prophecy Today Weekend. And this weekend, we start out on a solemn note. Our friend and longtime partner in the ministry, Dave James, has passed away. He passed away on the night of October 21st. He's gone home to be with the Lord. He had a long battle uh, with covid and uh, as with everyone else, I'm reminded of the verse that the psalmist said in Psalm 116, 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the home going or the death of his saints. And Dave is now home with the Lord. Rick, uh, you and I both have experienced that heartache, but also the joy that goes along with losing someone as we lost our father in, in August. Certainly so, and this is very close to that event. And when we found out last night, and I spoke with my wife, she's from uh, the area of Indiana where Dave is basically from, near Terre Haute, Indiana. And so they had a a little bit of a a kinship that way. And I remember Dave James and his family, his wife Karen, his son Chris, his daughter Becky, they were missionaries in Hungary. And my wife and I would go over to Hungary and be involved in basketball camps in in the late 90s and early 2000s. So that's where we... Uh, basically, we we come from a similar background. We were involved with each other at Word of Life, but then uh, we definitely served in ministry there, I guess, over 20 years ago now. And then for all these years, the ministry that he's had with Prophecy Today and his relationship with our Father, we are certainly heartbroken, but we know where they are right now. We know they're together. We know what they're doing right now. I couldn't imagine facing this type of tragedy and facing these types of tragedies and not having the hope that we have. You're certainly right, Rick. Uh, We know that they're in the heavenlies now surrounding the throne of God the Father. You know, I was recently speaking with a friend of mine who knew our dad, and he was talking about, like, the first thing our father would have done when he got to heaven is, you know, he's such a student of Bible prophecy. He's a student of the Bible in general, uh, probably lining up to talk to John. As he to talk about him writing the book of Revelation or lining up to talk to Daniel, so I I I kind of get this kind of funny thought in my mind or a funny thought in my head that they're both uh, lifelong and that's their legacy, lifelong students of the Bible in general, and of course for our father and even for Dave, Bible prophecy in particular, and they are now for the amount of their life that they've dedicated or committed to studying the word they are now they are talking with the authors of those very scriptures it's a it's an exciting thought and a comforting thought as we know uh, we are going to miss them but we're looking forward we have that same promise for ourselves yes that is a great thought rick and i know both uh, dad and dave would want us to continue the program and that's what we're going to do this week but we give honor to dave james who went home to be with the lord october 21st 2021. Well, we must get on with the program, and we've got our broadcast partners standing by. Well, we certainly do have a lot to discuss. Ken Timmerman, he's our expert on geopolitical affairs. Ken, thanks for joining us today. It's good to be with you, Rick. Thanks for having me. Ken, let's get right into it. Our first subject that I would like to talk about, an article in Al Jazeera talking about Iran hosting a multilateral conference on Afghanistan and it uh, includes all of Afghanistan's neighbors. What can you tell us about this conference? Yes, it includes all of Afghanistan's neighbors except for Afghanistan. (laughs) So the Iranians basically want to decide the fate of the future government of Afghanistan uh, in some kind of co-op arrangement 
with Russia, Pakistan, China, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan, but not talking to the Taliban or anyone else. Uh, it's a it's a kind of interesting approach to um, politics, to international affairs. Decide over the heads of the people whose lives you are talking about controlling without letting them have any say in the matter. I kind of find this just another one of these empty gestures that the Iranian regime uh, tends to make. Well, and Iran typically operates with what we would call proxies in other countries and other regions. Are they trying to make Afghanistan a proxy as well? Well, that's a good question. And, you know, they've had this on, they have this on-again, off-again relationship with the Taliban, and that's been going on for many years, where they will cooperate with them, and then if the Taliban goes beyond red lines, for example, uh, it attacks Shias, the Hazaras, in the western part of Afghanistan along the border with Iran, then the Iranians get upset. Uh, so they're really talking now about how to preserve their interests in Afghanistan. Now, those interests are really two big ones. Number one, they want to protect the Hazaras, the Shias in uh, Mazar Sharif and the eastern uh, in the western part of the country. And the second is they want to expand their trade with Afghanistan and work out some kind of deal or condominium, especially with the Chinese, to split uh, the huge, I mean, huge estimated $3 trillion mineral deposits in Afghanistan between them. Continuing on with Iran, we've heard a report from President Biden's emissary that he said to negotiate a deal with Iran that we need to prepare for Iran with a nuclear program that has no constraints. Yeah, well, isn't that uh, uh, a big surprise? Uh, Rob Malley, uh, who's this envoy, was deeply involved in negotiating the original Iran nuclear deal in 2015. And this was a deal that uh, placed limited constraints on Iran that were touted uh, by Malley and others as putting the Iranian nuclear weapons program in a box, but which even Obama recognized didn't do that. Even Obama recognized that uh, the 2015 nuclear deal essentially guaranteed that Iran would have a nuclear weapons program fully up and fully running by the end of 2025. Now, the Iranians, since uh, the U.S. pulled out of the deal in 2018, uh, have blown by all of the ostensible constraints. Now, they had already surpassed them, so they were already in violation of the deal, basically, from day one. The Iranians have not kept any deal, the Islamic regime in Iran has not kept any international deal has ever signed. They are in violation of the non-proliferation treaty. They should be subjected to international multilateral sanctions because of that. Uh, the Bush administration in tw uh, 2005 uh, began to, in to, to garner a multilateral coalition to impose uh, is restrictions on Iran precisely because they were in violation of the non-proliferation treaty. Nobody seems to remember that any longer, uh, least of all Rob Malley. So now what Malley is doing is he's going around to organizations like the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and saying, oh my gosh, it's all Trump's fault for having pulled the United States out of the Iran nuclear deal. Now we have an Iran heading willy-nilly towards nuclear weapons capabilities with no constraints, and we have to get ready for Plan B. And Plan B, which he doesn't want to talk about, is, of course, encouraging the Israelis 
to take out the Iranian nuclear program militarily, something that the Biden team, I call them B-team Biden, has no stomach for, has no courage to acknowledge, and they want to put all the responsibility on the heads of the Israeli government. And they will certainly blame them if that happens. Well, continuing on, and we look at the the Biden administration policy of basically reducing the U.S. impact in the Middle East area, and that's creating a power vacuum. And we've talked about this throughout the weeks. And now we're looking at Saudi Arabia has been put at the top of China's Middle Eastern diplomacy. So it looks like China's moving in. Well, that's right. And, and, it's, and it's interesting to see as the United States pulls out. So the, 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 the Biden team has decided to uh, really to um, uh, put Saudi Arabia, back them into a corner. They want to put them into a box, punish them for the uh, grisly murder of a Saudi dissident, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, two years ago. Uh, and uh, the U.S. has pulled out Patriot missile batteries. We talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, the Greeks have moved in to fill that vacuum. Well, now the United States is trying to isolate Saudi Arabia. And so, of course, both the Russians and the Chinese are moving in. So this visit by the Chinese foreign minister, I think, is extremely significant. Uh, the Chinese have got money. Uh, they've got weapons technology. And they have a history with Saudi Arabia. Remember, during the Reagan administration, the Saudis secretly bought strategic ballistic missiles from communist China, 1986, missiles that would allow them to hit uh, Iran. And um, uh, today, I expect that they will uh, try to expand those military ties at the same time as they recently have, have signed a military cooperation agreement with Russia. So the Saudis are being pretty much forced by the Biden White House to turn to Russia and China for military assistance and for economic and diplomatic support. Well, that's a very interesting development, especially for students of Bible prophecy. Our final question, Ken, is we have been focusing so much on Afghanistan and what's taking place in Iran and the nuclear program and starts and the talks there, but we have not talked a whole lot recently about what's going on in Turkey, and it looks like they are trying to destabilize the region again and uh, potentially threaten Syria. Well, that's right, and, and there, there are rumors now uh, that Turkey is uh, preparing to launch a new assault, a military push into northern Syria against the Kurds. Uh, they have never given up their war against the Kurds and have, have been really disappointed since 2018 when uh, the Kurds were allowed to regroup after Turkey's initial incursion that year and uh, maintain a pretty much politically independent enclave in northeastern Syria. So now the Turks are talking about moving in militarily. They're trying to buy F-16s from the United States. And let's remember that they're using those F-16s to bomb the Kurds, to bomb Kurdish villages, to bomb Kurdish cities, uh, to bomb Kurdish fighters as well when they can find them. So, so this talk of, of the future uh, Turkish incursion into northern Syria is something that we need to keep our eyes on. I think it's going to develop uh, pretty rapidly in the coming weeks. Well, Ken, in a world where it's so hard to, to make sure you're getting unbiased news, we appreciate all you do to bring a proper political perspective to what's taking place in the world. Well, thank you, Rick. It's, it's my pleasure. And uh, I think this program really does a great service uh, to our listeners. <laughs> 
The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. And we're back right here on Prophecy Today with our Middle East news update with our longtime friend and correspondent from Israel, Dave Dolan. Dave, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Rick. I hope you are as well. We are. Thank you for joining us. Dave, uh, I'd like to start off with what is a should be a particularly sensitive subject. Uh, there was an attack in Syria on U.S. troops. Can you tell us about that situation? Uh, yeah, Rick. On Wednesday evening, there was a joint attack, I would say, because it was both drones and it was rockets on the Al-Tamf U.S. air base in southern Syria. Now, that's located very, very close to where three countries meet, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq. And we've had a lot of trouble in that area. It's the reason that the U.S. has a base there. It's very strategic. Uh, The highway from Iran that goes through Iraq and continues on into Syria and Lebanon is very close to that. And, of course, the Iranians have been using that to bring supplies and uh, men into Syria and into Lebanon. Uh, The initial reports were that no U.S. servicemen were injured or killed in the attack, but they said they were still um, assessing all of the damage. And it's thought by many that it was probably the revenge that the pro-Iranian militias in Syria said they would take for a couple Israeli airstrikes that were believed to have been launched from the area of the Al-Tamp base, and maybe, in fact, the Israeli jets were stationed there. That's what some are saying. So it may have been their vowed revenge attack that we talked about last week. But um, it's another sign that the shadow war continues, and the drones were believed to be Iranian-built drones 
uh, probably set by Iran itself, not just their own allied militia forces. We'll see about that, too. But it hasn't gotten much attention in the United States, but it's a major development and certainly being discussed around the Middle East. Well, switching gears a little bit, we're going to talk about Israel and some welcome news to those who want to go and experience the Holy Land, as both you and I uh, have and have participated in Israeli tourism. Looks like beginning November 1st, fully vaccinated tourists are going to be able to enter into Israel again. That decision was announced just earlier this week, and uh, welcomed by the Israeli Tourism Ministry. You take groups to Israel, or we're doing so very often before COVID hit, and you know how vital the tourism industry is to Israel's economy. It's one of their greatest foreign currency earners, etc. A lot of people were employed in that sector, but a lot of hotels have been closed down. And a lot of tourist sites are just sitting empty. Uh, last May, they started to let in limited tourism. They had to be small groups. They had to go through certain tests and et cetera. And now they're going to open it up to a wider range. But there's still some conditions. You have to uh, have had a vaccine within six months. You have to take a test within three days of the trip. And as soon as you get to Ben-Gurion Airport, you have to take another test, and then you have to remain quarantined for at least a few hours, sometimes up to a day, until the test results are returned. So those are the uh, conditions. And also, they're not accepting tourists from some countries that have vaccines that are not recognized by Israel. That currently includes Russia. And, by the way, that was a topic when Prime Minister Bennett met with Russian President Putin on Friday in Sochi in southern Russia. They mainly focused on Iran and Syria and all of that, but they also discussed the tourism trade. Putin, of course, wants that opened up. But they said that the new Delta variant, uh, AY4.2 is what it's labeled, that is now spreading in Britain and in some cases in the States, that that will be prevention. Any country where that is really raging will be uh, prevention. So we may see the spigot opened and closed and open and closed. This is about the fourth time they've announced a reopening, and it never fully went through. But um, the cases in Israel have dropped markedly. Over 8,000 people have died there of COVID, but uh, the rates are very, very low right now after this fourth wave. And so they're going to try this, and let's hope it, it happens, and let's hope you can get back to taking people and your brother over to Israel and showing them the Lord's land. And the Israelis are looking forward to that day as well very much. One of the places that we do go to when we're there, and we consider it the most important piece of real estate in all the world, because that's what God considers it as well, is the Temple Mount. And I wanted your comments on... The Israeli public security minister, Omir Barlev, and he insisted that amidst all of this talk of uh, prayer, Jewish prayer being allowed on the Temple Mount, that the status quo has not changed. What exactly does that mean, and what's the situation there on the Temple Mount? Well, as we discussed before, a local Jerusalem magistrate court ruled that Jews can pray up there, you know, as long as it's not uh, ostentatious, it's in a corner, it's quiet. Uh, but the district court then, the Jerusalem district court, overturned that, 
and that was uh, right after the public security minister, Barlev, as you said, said, well, no, we've got to maintain the status quo. It's uh, in place, and it will remain in place, he said. So um, it's just unclear, uh, Rick, but it looks like what will happen is the police won't intervene unless there is a group praying in a public part of the Temple Mount, unless they have brought up prayer shawls and prayer books, which are forbidden to be brought in, but sometimes they're smuggled in, as long as the uh, individual Jews are praying, uh, you know, in areas where they're not seen, it looks like that will be allowed to continue. It, it is unclear, and, you know, it's, uh, as he said, it's one of the most emotionally contested places on earth, and uh, that's the case. So we'll just see what happens there. But I believe there will continue to be some Jewish prayer up there, but certainly not uh, groups uh, openly praying like should be the case. Well, shifting our focus from Israel and the Temple Mount area, let's go back to talking about what's taking place in the Middle East in general, and especially with um, regards to Iran and Israel. And the first article that I'd like you to comment about is a former Mossad chief says that Iran is a greater risk to Abu Dhabi than to Israel. So some of Iran's neighbors are at more risk from Iran's aggressiveness. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, Yossi Cohen, he uh, resigned last May as uh, Mossad head. He made that statement to an Israeli newspaper during the week, and uh, it's true. That's all I can say. The UAE and the other Gulf states are very, very close to Iran. Israel's quite a distance from Iran, and um, they're smaller they don't have near the military forces or power that uh, Israel has. And this came after the UAE foreign minister admitted that Iran was considered their greatest enemy. And uh, he said uh, to an Israeli visitor, official that was visiting, we're uh, not seeing you as, uh, you know, the, the main victim here. We're all potentially going to be <laughs> wiped out by Iran. They hate us as much as they do you. So... That statement is sort of uh, just saying the obvious, but it just shows that the relations between Israel and these Gulf states are strong, and uh, they all recognize that Iran is a great threat. Uh, Iran's uh, surrogate force in Lebanon, Hezbollah, uh, the leader Nasrallah, said on Sunday that they have 100,000 fighters uh, ready to go to war against Israel. And as Israeli media pointed out, that, if true, would make it larger than the Lebanese army itself. And uh, they consider Israel an enemy, Hezbollah, and they are going to keep warring. And the militias in Syria, the militias in Iraq, all very dangerous. As I said, this was an issue that was discussed on Friday between the Russian and Israeli leaders. Israel uh, reportedly saying, Bennett reportedly saying, we... We don't want to, but we must continue to strike at these militia forces in Syria and the area because of their vows, uh, Iran, uh, at the top of that, to destroy us. The Russian uh, leader said, well, we're not happy about it. Try to give us more notice. But he didn't say stop them altogether. So uh, it's a precarious situation indeed. And also we had Avigdor Lieberman, 
uh, the finance minister this week say that an Israeli strike on Iran's nuclear program is probably inevitable, and he said it's probably nearing. It's probably going to come fairly soon. He was commenting after it was announced that a billion five hundred million dollars will be put into a new program to prepare for a possible Israeli strike on Iran. So it's a hot situation and uh, watching it every day. But, of course, we've been talking about this for some years. But every day that goes by, Iran gets stronger. We're just hoping every day that goes by, Israel is uh, strengthened as well. Well, David, thank you so much for keeping an eye on this situation for us. And yes, many of these things we have discussed, but these developments continue to take place. And and we thank you for continuing to keep an eye on them and keep our listeners informed. I'm glad to do it, Rick. God bless. We're going to take a break right now on Prophecy Today. But when we return, we have Winky Madad with us right here on Prophecy Today Radio. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. We've got Rob Congdon coming up in the second half of this half hour. But first, we go to Rick, who's got Winky Madad standing by at our broadcast table in Israel. Winky Madad with us again today, our good friend, former mayor of Shiloh and longtime broadcast partner on Prophecy Today. Winky, how are you doing today? Fine, thank you. Thank you very much. Doing well. Thank you for being on. Uh, my first question, and uh, the long-awaited news that uh, Israel is opening back up for tourists. Uh, November 1st, fully vaccinated tourists from green countries can come in. What can you tell us about that news, and is that well-received? Uh, what, what are they saying about that in Israel? Well, of course, it's good news. It means that uh, the government feels it has a hand on the ability to control things. I am hopeful due to the previous opportunities that got us into trouble, that the uh, airport needs to be fully staffed in preparation. I understand that the number at the beginning uh, of next month, uh, November, will be small, about, I think, 2,000 a day, which is, of course, not adequate for all the many people who want to see Israel and the Holy Land. But we have to start somewhere, and I hope people understand we have to start in a sort of uh, controlled, supervised manner, because this corona seems to be very willing to sneak out into all sorts of places if you don't have the proper controls. People who have been vaccinated, I think it's twice at least, or maybe even with the booster, I'm not quite sure. I haven't looked at the government press office statement, but in general, I think we're looking towards the beginning 
of a better future for tourism and a normal life here in Israel. Well, many of the people that are listening to us right now have been to Israel with us. You know, I get a question very often, how is Israel handling this? Because, you know, tourism was such a big portion of the economy over there, or at least it seems like it is, and uh, they've had no tourism for uh, you know, coming up on 18, 19 months. Uh, that must have been a big blow. How is Israel surviving this? Uh, well, poorly, I would have to say. There's a lot of people dependent on tourism. It's not just your bus driver and the guide and the hotel room. It's the restaurants. It's the gift shops. It's the national parks. There are myriad of people that benefit from the fact that people want to come to Israel, want to see the old and the modern. They want to enjoy themselves. They want to walk the streets. They want to have ice cream. They want to have uh, uh, the famous Israeli breakfast uh, in their hotels. And there's a lot of people dependent, and it's been very difficult. I have a good few friends because of both my political and educational work who are, who are tour guides who are, uh, in some cases, I'm not going to say starving, but have developed other economic bases, whether it's translating, whether it's all sorts of other uh, issues. And it, it, it's not good because people, especially in tourism, you love the work you do. It's not just going to work at 9 o'clock in the morning and sitting at the desk and pushing a pencil or a pen or now you type on a computer. But these people, as you know very well, have a, a, a esprit de vivre, a spirit of life that's, that's, that, that, that makes everybody happy. Uh, and that's the best type of a tour guide and a bus driver possible, because otherwise, it's, like, to use a, a Yiddish uh, word, a schlep, it's a, a burden. It becomes too much of a, something to carry. Well, we are certainly counting down the days when we can return. Uh, we love to look at the Bible, uh, travel the land with our pilgrims, mostly uh, Christian pilgrims that are coming over with us, and, and, and study in Israel. There's no better classroom in the world for studying the Bible. Uh, one of the places that we will be looking forward to going to is we've heard that they're doing a lot of new excavation. I guess one of the benefits of not having too many tourists around is that you're able to um, spend more time uh, unbothered uh, in, in archaeological digs. And I noticed they found several new buildings near the Temple Mount. Do you know anything about these? Look, every week in Israel you have archaeological news. We had a, um, a toilet in a very, looked like a, a, a mansion. We had a crusader sword. We have, uh, I don't know exactly if they're buildings, but if they're structures, they're not quite sure how to identify them yet, but everywhere, in Bet Shemesh, in some of the places in Judea and Samaria, there are lots of new things being found, and especially in the city of David, right underneath the Temple Mount, in the south of the Temple Mount. And, and these things, of course, are not only attract, but as you say, they're a learning experience straight on. Imagine being able to stand where people stood 2,000, 2,500 years ago, and observe their uh, life as much as possible. This confirms, usually, as my experience of the last 50 years, 99.9% .9 of what's written in the Bible. And so uh, faith becomes 
rooted in science, and science helps out faith. And I think that's the best way to live a life in this uh, modern 21st century. My first visit to Israel was in the 80s, and so I've been going to Israel, and I've been there many times since then, and so I've been going there over 30 years. And even, you know, in the last 30 years that I've been going, so many new things have been found. So many things have been changed. It's almost like you said, things get found so frequently that you have to go every two or three years just to get updated on what's uh, what's been discovered. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's not only exciting from a intellectual element, uh, but it's also exciting in fact it's a spiritual that you, you can say to yourself that the books of the Bible were not just a vision or they're not myths as, as in other peoples and nations, uh, but they are uh, uh, a reflection of what life was at the time. Well, another topic that we have talked about in the past, but we want to continue to monitor because news is being made each week, is the attempt by some to potentially reopen a consulate in Jerusalem. Now, we know that President Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem. So why are they trying to open a consulate there? And what is the uh, political importance of this move? Well, look, I'll be right straightforward. There's, there's, there's no other reason for the State Department to insist, and as we understand from some of the newspaper reports, basically telling Prime Minister Bennett and Foreign Minister Lapid that there's no question what the United States is going to go forward to do, uh, to reopen a consulate rather than a Palestinian affairs unit within the embassy, is to indicate to the Arabs the United States supports their claim that Jerusalem is not a united city. Jerusalem is not uh, uh, under proper Israeli administration and control, and that everything is open for negotiation or for dictate. And that is not the way I think friends should do the situation. I know that Jerusalem can be said as it's still a final negotiation issue. But once the United States made that move to put the embassy there, even if they want to reopen the Jerusalem issue, a consulate should be either in Ramallah or in Bethlehem, which is where the seat of the Palestinian Authority, quote-unquote, government has offices and its main offices, and then start from there. Why are you going to put a consulate for Palestinians in Jerusalem when not that many live there, and you want to serve them, whether it's uh, consular services, visas, all sorts of other issues. They're just putting your thumb in Israel's eye. If I could ask you, and I know what you would say, and I know what I would say, but the body politic, the man on the street in Israel, or I guess the popular opinion, are they committed to Jerusalem as an undivided Jewish city under Israeli control? Absolutely. Uh, I'm not going to say 100%, but way over 80%. Don't forget we have a 20% Arab population, so I can't say that they fully uh, are with that move. But between you and me and everybody who's listening, it's a foolish move on the United States because it gives the government and the opposition a possibility of uniting on the issue of Jerusalem in terms of perhaps demonstrations and protests. In other words, you're serving up, I think it's called a, a, uh, 
an easy pitch or a soft pitch. I'm not quite, I can't remember the phrase anymore. In baseball, you know, you're allowing a demonstration or an activist campaign to get off the ground because Jerusalem is a very unifying issue in Israel. Uh, I guess along those same lines and how uh, diverse the new government is in Israel, I wanted to get your perspective on how that government is working, representing a vast array of different viewpoints inside the coalition government that is in Israel. Uh, several months in, I think, uh, you know, we're five, four or five months in here. How is this new government working? Um, this week, they have lost already at least one vote in the Knesset. The votes they have won have been by very few votes, which means, uh, for those who know the parliamentary process, which I've discussed uh, on the station many, many times, the smaller the party, the more political clout it carries, because the absence of two to three members of Knesset from this list or that list, that party or this party, will cause the government to lose a vote, and at a crucial moment, like at a budget voting, or a no-confidence vote, the government could fall. So, on the one hand, the smaller parties get greater power, and the main parties, those of the foreign minister, Mr. Lapid, Mr. Bennett, become relatively powerless or less powerful because they're so much dependent, which means a lot of instability. So far, Mr. Netanyahu has held together very tightly and very orderly, or, or in good discipline, shall I say, the 50, almost 52, I think, it's members of the opposition. And they've been doing very well in the committee meetings and on the plenum floor, which is making life very difficult for the government. Recently, Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield uh, from the United States at a U.N. Security Council briefing on the situation in the Middle East had some what I view as, I guess, supportive for Israel comments. And what she said was, that respectfully, these Security Council meetings tend to be focused on the Palestinian issue and criticism and attacks on Israel, and she felt like that was out of balance and also that there's some other situations that they should be uh, looking at in the Security Council. Uh, can I get your comments on those statements by Ambassador Thomas Greenfield? Well, first of all, I want to thank her. Uh, for making that statement. The United Nations has been becoming uh, problematic for Israel uh, in the sense that uh, at these meetings, especially the Human Rights Council meetings, a separate agenda item is Palestine. In other words, you can talk about Iran, if they do talk about Iran, which they don't. They could talk about, I don't know, Haiti or, or other places, Russia, China, which we all know have a lot of problems. And they're all in one agenda item. The next agenda item is Israel and Palestine. So it's like every meeting you have to talk about the issue of Palestine. One thing, though, I disliked uh, or I wasn't happy with in her remarks, she did mention that there were several criminal activities or activities of a violent nature by Jews living in Judea and Samaria, are quite insignificant in terms of numbers, but nevertheless, I condemn them. 
but she didn't mention any of the attacks by Arabs on Jews in this area. A lot of stone throwing, some firebombing uh, in Jerusalem, especially on our roads. And so, while I give her a plus on the first issue, I give her a minus on the next one. Well, that's certainly a situation we're going to have to keep an eye on, Winky. Thank you so much for your information, and Shabbat Shalom to you. Thank you very much. Shabbat Shalom to all of our our listeners. Thank you again for the privilege of being on the program. Goodbye to you and our listeners. Winky Madad. Thank you, Winky, for joining with us and uh, giving us information about Israel, along with Dave Dolan, keeping us up to date on what's happening in the nation of Israel politically and and, uh, along with tourism and so many other aspects of what they cover. Well, our next guest is Dr. Rob Congdon. Rob is the founder of Congdon Ministries International, CMI, a ministry that has sought to assist local churches in, in both Great Britain and the United States, and really, I think now, uh, around the world. His work to include many other countries. Uh, a primary focus of CMI is a defense of dispensationalism, premillennialism and biblical hermeneutics, the literal, historical, and grammatical interpretation of God's Word. And in that pursuit, Rob has written a number of booklets that are critical of Calvinism. And one of the recent teachings concerning what he calls New Calvinism, and we're going to discuss that. In fact, there's a lot of things that we have to discuss, Rob, but it's great to have you with us today. Well, it's always good to be with you and uh, just to have our time together and to share with your listeners. Uh, we keep running into them as we travel around, and they tell us that they really appreciate the program. The last time we were on, we talked about, uh, briefly, about the uh, new Calvinism, uh, Calvinistic thinking and the ideas from the past, but probably, and we're going to discuss many different things, but probably we need to just establish what is Calvinism, because I think today uh, the average listener, now we have lots of pastors that understand, maybe, they understand Calvinism and and that, but what is traditional Calvinist? Uh, Actually, traditional Calvinism really goes back to the 4th century, and most people don't think that way. Uh, Augustine really laid the foundation which Calvin built on, and it's been traveling along. We It's often called Reformed Theology. Um, it's called Calvinism today. It's called New Calvinism. It, it's just the same Calvinism. New Calvinism is merely a repackaged form that was a really focused on the younger adults from 20 to, say, 40 years old. And so they've used more techniques, Internet, etc., to reach those people. But it's, it's still a fundamental Calvinism. It's a system that Calvin, Augustine, tried to organize supposedly around the scriptures, although it has heavy Greek philosophy foundations in it as well. And so it, it's been in the church, if you will, through since the 4th century. But it's had a real major rebirth in the last 15, 20 years, and it has moved into many fundamentalist churches, uh, Baptist, Bible churches, to the point where today uh, it, it is probably a major movement in what was once independent, very conservative theological churches. 
Mm, well, we want to definitely, I want to ask you, why do you think that is? But let's, if you could briefly, for those that uh, just remind us what the the five points of Calvin, his five key doctrines. Okay. There are, and some people have said there's 20, but there are, <laughs> typically there are five listed and they use the little acronym of TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. T stands for total human depravity. U stands for unconditional election. L is for limited atonement. I is irresistible grace. And P is perseverance. And I add a caution immediately. Calvin, many people say they're Calvinists, very throw it out, because they don't want to be some other alternative. And they don't understand the true Calvinistic definitions of those five concepts and when they actually start reading it and I get emails all the time like I didn't realize that's really what those words mean I've always put my own definition in mm-hmm. and I, I I just typically throw out the quick one perseverance to most Christians that means well if I'm saved I'll I'm kept saved I'll never be let go by God and that's not the definition of perseverance at all so we need to really understand their definitions and how they are using it and significantly how are they applying it to the people they're teaching in their churches. Why are they changing the terms? Well, actually it isn't a change in understanding. It's really we who are in church circles. Um, we've just thrown our own definitions to them thinking, well, we're all sort of Calvinist. I, I wrote a booklet I called, Oops, I Thought I Was a Four-Point Calvinist. If we go back uh, 40 years, I would have said I was a Calvinist. Mm-hmm. And then when I read how they define it and how they interpret the scriptures going through the filter of those five terms, I realized, hold it, that's not what the scriptures teach. And I realized that their terminology, which is traditional, goes back all the way through Calvin, uh, is not what we've just assumed it means, and we kind of redefine it to make ourselves comfortable with it. For instance, when you get to unconditional election, I don't know about you, but I would be very uncomfortable Mm -hmm. thinking that we have a God who elects people to hell and other people to heaven Mm. based on his choice. And when I look up the word election in the Bible, I find it has a whole different definition than it does in Calvinism. Well, when we get back to a point that you brought up earlier, that churches, um, you know, uh, Baptist churches, not they're just not Reformed churches or churches that uh, we would associate that would be Calvinistic in their thinking. Uh, it's really spreading to different churches today. Why do you think that is? And first of all, why do you think that is? And then second... Uh, how can we tell? So let's let's address why do you think it's spreading to more traditional conservative Baptist churches? Well, there are many, uh, you know, ideas as to what that is. I, I was part of a conference of pastors, several, a large number of pastors, and we tried to discuss what did we think was at heart the problem. And I think the problem largely is in, in the non-Calvinistic churches, the Bible churches, the Baptist churches, Um, For the last 20, 30 years, and I've talked to a lot of young adults and uh, read quite a number of surveys, and they're reflecting what I'm about to say. 
they have found that the young adults were not finding answers in their churches to their questions. They were being told what they should do. They were being told what a Christian is like, and they were to sit there and listen to the sermons, but never really being given answers to life. And so consequently, they started drifting, and they started looking around. And Calvinists give very, oh, they sound beautiful. They're very philosophical answers to many things. They're not always truly a biblical answer. Mm -hmm. And the young people started flocking. As they went to their churches, to the Reformed churches, the parents of the young adults, they wanted to follow them. They followed. And as that happened, more and more Baptist and Bible churches started saying, I guess we should start shifting. And they started shifting to a Calvinistic teaching. And then finally, and sad to say, many of the pastors who were still faithfully teaching the scriptures, they're getting old, or the Lord's taking them home now because of their age. And the young pastors are coming out of schools that are teaching Reformed. Right where I live, we have a major Christian university that once was very fundamental and today it's reformed in its teaching so mm. they followed through too and so we have this movement that's growing and weekly i get emails and phone calls and people say you know we've noticed some things happening in our church what is this that's going on we were told to call you and just tell you what we see mm. and as they tell me i say yeah yep yep i know exactly where it's going next and that's what's happening because it's following a pattern. Tell me what's on your website that where we can go there at, at congdenministries.org? It's .org. Okay. And if they just go congdenministries.org or just do a search for Robert Congdon, um, you'll come to my website. And what we have done, we're trying to reach out to that same age group that the New Calvinists did. And 50% of our viewing audience on our videos are in the young category, which we're excited about. We're trying to counter this. But we have a series of video teachings now that we put on our website. We certainly have some on TULIP. We also have a whole series on Calvinistic eschatology and why it's not biblical, like things like the Great White Throne Judgment. Mm -hmm. Calvinists teach that every one of us are going to stand at the Great White Throne Judgment before God. That's baloney. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we have teaching videos, about 45 to 50 minutes each, on these specific subjects. You go to our website, you can't miss them. Uh, you can go to the index on the left and see all the videos we have. And through the website is the quickest way. You certainly can watch it on Sermon Audio or on YouTube, but going through our website routes you immediately to our videos. And we also are serving through our booklets. Um, we've written short booklets because the young adults, 20 to 40 today, they don't want to sit and read some of the massive books and good books that have been written, like Dave Hunt's book. Mm -hmm. So we've produced smaller books they can sit in an evening, read through it, get the essence, and understand it. So our website makes available a lot of helps, and um, we're going to be putting more and more on every month. Rob, thank you so much. I would encourage everyone to go to his website to look at the videos. He, there is a lot of information there to digest, to take it in. Good, solid teaching. 
Uh, we've counted on Rob many years uh, in our ministry and, and uh, following him in his ministry. We stand by what he teaches and wholeheartedly support it and his ministry. So please go there, take a look at his website. Uh, Rob, uh, I want to come back later on and talk about how this affects eschatology, how Calvinism in, in a more in-depth way. Are you agreeable to that? Oh, that would be fine. I, I actually contend that Calvinism's foundation and why it's wrong is because they have the wrong eschatology, and therefore they have gone astray in interpreting all the scriptures and uh, how crucial it is that people understand eschatology, or as we talk about prophecy, and the coming of the Lord, especially as it gets nearer. And don't forget, we're the bride of Christ. We're going to rule and reign with Christ in the millennium. I believe we need to understand prophecy because we're not only going to have to teach it, we need to know all those facts so we can actually serve our Lord. Mm. Excellent. Thank you, Rob. We'll look forward to our next conversation. Look forward to it. Lord bless you and your listeners. Well, we're going to have to take a break. And when we come back, we have a brand new series that we're starting. It's the uh, it's a voice from the past. It's my father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, who passed away August 15th. And uh, we're going to have what we entitle the Legacy Series, where Dad is going to be teaching uh, what we have been taught all these years in Bible prophecy. I'm looking forward to that series coming up. That's all coming up right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. It's great to be with you. And this is a sad weekend as we remember Dave James going home to be with the Lord. And this is the segment, Rick, where we used to have, well, Dad and Dave would carry on regularly for almost nine years, a segment called Dave James Reports. And he would talk about issues concerning the body of Christ. That's right, Jimmy. For many years, they, in this time slot, addressed many issues concerning current theological trends and, and issues of all different varieties that sought to educate the Christian community on what is taking place in the world right now. Yes. Well, you and I talked about this, and we had a lot of people that emailed us and said that they missed uh, having Dad on the program. So in conversation with you, we talked about starting a new series, which we're entitling the Legacy Series, which is Dad's Teaching in this segment where dad teaches Bible prophecy and what he has taught for so many years. I think this is going to be a very exciting part of the program. Oh, absolutely. Dad's study and his Bible study is the foundation for what would become Prophecy Today and the the motivation for this radio program. It's basically studying Scripture, and it's basically a Bible teaching program. And obviously, I love to hear his teaching, and I love to re-listen to these programs, as I'm sure many of our listeners will. Well, we're going to play these series of messages where, as Rick says, basically the the foundation for Prophecy Today started from. But this goes back a long way in his Bible teaching, which has helped many people to understand where we are in the times in which we're living. Here is Dr. Jimmy DeYoung with a new series that we're entitling the Legacy Series on Why Study Bible Prophecy. 
Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Lamentations just a moment. Put your thumb in Lamentation, then go over to Revelation chapter 22 and put your index finger there. Your thumb in Lamentation, your index finger in chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. There are 1188 chapters in the Bible. What you have pinched between your thumb and your finger is 392 chapters. It's basically 42 books of the Bible. 27 books in the New Testament, 15 books in the Old Testament. And that's how much is Bible prophecy in your Bible. It's one in every three pages. 31% of the entire Word of God is Bible prophecy. Thus, I do believe it behooves us to study Bible prophecy. My plan is to give you five keys to unlocking God's plan for the future. We're living in a time like I don't believe anybody in history has ever lived before. There are so many current events unfolding that would give us an indication that the stage is being set, as Dr. John Walford used to say, the stage is being set for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. If you look at the last year, Hillary Clinton made a very interesting statement when she stood in front of the European headquarters in Brussels, Belgium. She said the greatest event, the greatest historic event in the last 50 years had just happened. And that, of course, was with the ratification of the Lisbon Treaty on the 3rd of November last year. And then on the 19th of November, the election of the leaders to lead the European Union into the future. They gelled probably one of the most unbelievable political units. And indeed, they put leadership in that role of leading that organization, the European Union. At the same time, if you're a China watcher, you have to be aware of the fact of what's going on in China. China has surpassed America in consumption of oil products, petroleum products, and they control every single sea lane leading into China. They have their battleships, they have their military personnel all along every sea lane from every major producer of oil in the world today. If you look at China, you can realize they've, in addition to that, been spending a lot of money on military armament and munitions, plus the fact that they probably are the banker of the entire world, and uh, they do control, basically, the economy, I believe, of the United States by the fact that they are back in all the debt, or much of the debt here in the United States. And I could go on and on and tell you of what is happening in our world. If you've studied Bible prophecy at all and have any idea of some of the players I've just mentioned and how they fit into Bible prophecy, you're aware of the fact that this world is about to see the end time scenario that's laid out in God's Word and the Bible. And Bible prophecy confirms exactly what I'm saying along that line. So I do suggest that we need to spend some time in understanding Bible prophecy. Why should we study Bible prophecy? The first reason is because it is profitable. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So studying any portion of the word of God is profitable. I did a little project for myself this last year. I developed a uh, devotional. Everybody's doing devotionals. I wanted to do mine with a prophetic perspective. So I went through every single book of the Bible. In every book of the Bible, 
There's Bible prophecy. We set aside 17 Old Testament books, one New Testament book, the book of Revelation. And we say those are prophecy books. But in all 66 books, somebody said Philemon, the little book in the New Testament, does not have a prophetic passage. It does. It talks about the judgment seat of Christ, which is a very important component in uh, the prophetic events that are going to happen in the future. And so it is that all books of the Bible have Bible prophecy in them. So it is profitable to you and to me if we study the Word of God and in particular study Bible prophecy. It's proven as well. Go to Second Peter just a moment. Second Peter uh, chapter 1. Second Peter is the swan song for the Apostle Peter. He's a man that uh, had played a very important role in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus playing a very important role in his life as well. We look here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 of 2 Peter 1. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my demise, after his decease, he knew he was going to be dying soon, that you may be, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. This voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. This is uh, recounting how it was when the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, went with Jesus. They were at Caesarea Philippi. That's the location where Peter announced that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's where Jesus then told his disciples that he was not going to set up the kingdom, but instead he was going to Jerusalem. He was going to be crucified. He would be buried and then resurrect from the dead uh, in three days And that was exactly what did happen, but he told them that in the 16th chapter of the book of Matthew. In the last verse of chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, Some of you are here who are not going to die before you see me come in my glory. Chapter 17, six days later, Jesus took his disciples. If you know where Caesarea Philippi is, it's the northeastern corner of Israel. And it's right in the foothills of Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in all of Israel, 9,000 plus feet high. Jesus took them onto the slopes of Mount Hermon, and there the transfiguration took place. The inner circle, Peter, James, and John. It was at that point when you remember, if you've read that passage before, Peter wanted to put up three tabernacles. Now that's not talking, I've heard a lot of pastors wax eloquent on the fact that there goes Peter again. He's working, moving ahead in action without thinking about what he's doing. He wasn't talking about putting up three statues to Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. He was simply talking about he saw Bible prophecy fulfilled. And in fact, Jesus had told him, some of you are not going to die before you see in my glory. There's Jesus in his glorified body as he will be in the kingdom. And what Peter was doing, he said, put up the tabernacles. He was talking about putting up a sukkah. S-U-C-A, a sukkah, is a thatched hut. That's what the children of Israel used when they wandered throughout the wilderness for the 40 years. And Peter thought that Jesus now was in the kingdom. They had moved immediately into the kingdom. That's why he wanted to put up the sukkah. Now, I want you to notice, Peter was there. He saw every bit of it. Now, notice verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. 
In other words, he was an eyewitness to all of this that happened. But we have a more sure word of prophecy, wherein ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn, until the day star arise in your heart. That's Jesus Christ coming back. And so studying Bible prophecy is not only profitable, but indeed it is proven to be a more sure word of prophecy. Better than even seen with our own eyes. Many people today are talking and bragging about, well, we saw this happen, we saw that happen. That's really not faith. What is faith? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, things not seen. So, you know, seeing something doesn't make it real, and it's certainly not by faith. But Peter said we have a more sure word of prophecy. And this, this book right here, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation twenty two twenty one. Well, it's uh, very practical, too. If you look back in Matthew chapter 16 sometimes, you'll see that the Sadducees and the Pharisees came to Jesus Christ, and they wanted a sign. They said, Jesus, show us a sign. Now, that is the most ironic statement I've ever seen in my life. That's chapter 16. Do you not remember what happened in chapter 14 of the book of Matthew? In chapter 14 of the book of Matthew, Jesus Christ fed 5,000 men plus the women and the children. So they had 5,000 men, 5,000 ladies. You got 5,000 men, five, you got 10,000 kids, 20,000 people on the mountainside. And he feeds them all enough fish sandwiches so they could take up baskets full after it's over, after everybody was fed as much as they want to. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, show us a sign. You go over to the 15th chapter. And it's an event happening several weeks later. He feeds 4,000 men plus the women and the children. Show us a sign. I, w- I do a lot of high school speaking. I speak in public high schools and uh, Christian high schools. But when I'm in public high schools, I do the same thing I do in a Christian high school. I speak about Jesus Christ. And I was in this one high school over here in West Seneca, New York. And I was talking about some of the things that Jesus did, feeding the 5,000, feeding the 4,000. I said, that was miraculous. I said, you know, plus all the women and the children and everything else. I got finished and this real sharp guy came up and said, hey, man. I said, yeah. He said, I know how he did that. I said, how he did what? I know how he fed those 5,000. Okay, tell me, how did he do it? Those weren't little fishes. And those weren't little loaves of bread. I said, what? He said, no, those were big fishes and big loaves of bread. Well, I thought he had me. I was kind of backing up. Then I started my calculator running in my mind. Man, if you feed 5,000 men, 5,000 ladies, 10,000 kids, 20,000 people, two pieces of uh, uh, bread for each sandwich, and he probably had two sandwiches. That's about, oh, 80,000 pieces of bread. And Wow. If those were big fishes and big loaves of bread, uh, the, the fishes weighed 625 pounds apiece, and the loaves of bread are 197 feet long. Can you see that little kid getting, hey, mom, give me some fish and bread. He starts out down the road. Look, those fishes were sardines, the smallest fish that has ever fished out of the Sea of Galilee. And there were little rolls of some type of bread. That's how he fit it. And the Sadducees say, show us a sign. You know what Jesus said to him? You can discern the weather. He talked about the weather here. He said, you know what the weather is. You can look outside. You can tell what the weather is. You can look up in the sky the night before. You can tell what the weather is going to be. And you cannot discern the times. Show us some signs. The signs that I've just alliterated to you a few moments ago are all over the place. We need to pay attention. It is 
practical to study Bible prophecy because it helps us to know how to live. I was walking out here to speak this morning. A lady walked by pushing her little stroller with her baby. She says, how then shall we live? (laughs) I love that because that's basically how I close out everything. How then shall we live in light of what we've learned today? And she was remembering that. Well, studying prophecy is very key, very important. Yes, indeed. Your study of Bible prophecy is very important, not only to understand God's calendar of events, but to motivate you and me to live a life that will bring glory to God. Next week, we're going to look at the assurance of Bible prophecy and the imminent return of Jesus Christ in the rapture. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and a new segment that we have on our program. And as he is setting the foundation for our ministry of Prophecy Today and the weekend program, Prophecy Today Weekend. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, Dr. Rich Schmidt will join us on the program. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And this program today um, is dedicated to a great friend of ours, Dave James. Rick, Dave has been a part of our life and he has helped form our uh, School of Prophets and really given us some great theological backing in our years in the ministry. He certainly has. And Dave James also left a legacy of examining Scripture. When all else fails, we go back to the Word. We look at what the Bible says. And his life, much like our father's life, was committed to studying Scripture, seeing what Scripture said, and then sharing and communicating that. Rick, as you know, I'm in Union Grove, Wisconsin this weekend. And joining me right now is Dr. Rich Schmidt. 
Rich, you were a great friend of David James. You had sat in his class. Uh, he had had personal interaction with you. Who was Dave James to you? Well, Dave James was an extraordinary teacher, one of the best relational people that I've ever known. Uh, my daughter, Tabitha Trushan, and uh, my son-in-law, Richard Trushan, uh, he was the one of their favorite instructors when they were both at uh, Word of Life in Hungary. They just absolutely loved him. My wife actually uh, extremely appreciated him. He did a lot of things helping with graphics and PowerPoints. And uh, personally, he really pushed me hard. Uh, he knew uh, I'd been writing some books and had been bound in ministry, and he did everything he could. And he, and he pushed me sometimes harder than I wanted to be pushed, but just such a great man, loved the Lord, absolutely was a, a consummate studier of the Word of God, and just so appreciate what he did. He was just such an exceptional individual, and it's uh, truly a tremendous loss to us. You know, Dave had a way of pushing you because he wanted to make sure, as a Bible teacher, that you knew what you were teaching. And, you know, sometimes as the student, you don't appreciate that until you become the teacher, and then you appreciate a teacher pushing you to become much more than you ever thought that you could, and to know your material, specifically the Word of God. Uh, you know, Dave was so consistent with his teaching, uh, committed to a proper understanding of the Word of God, correct? Well, absolutely. The, the classes that he taught, not only that uh, me and you enjoyed at the School of Prophets when he would be teaching, but these classes went literally around the world, multiple different continents, countries, and his teaching was so well received because it was excellent. He took the time to study the Word of God, to get the truths, and he was very open, by the way. I mean, he would definitely entertain discussion, questions, but when it came down to the truth, there was no compromising on that. So he was very strong in what he taught and how he taught it, and it helped me in uh, um, my particular ministry, and it's helped, I'm guessing, thousands of others around the world that have uh, enjoyed his teaching and have benefited from it. You know, Rich, as I'm thinking about this, and we were talking last night when we found out that Dave passed, and he's been very close in both of our lives, so we were following uh, his progress, and we've been praying for him. You know, you brought up a question, and you said, why is God taking, for instance, my father home? Right. Um, Dave James, I was very close, and you were very instrumental when I was in the hospital in intensive care. And I, and I really haven't told that story after my father's funeral and how that happened. But you were so instrumental. But ha have you come to some sort of understanding or the thought process as to why God is taking and, and what his plan is? I mean, we know he's sovereign. Well, it's it's a difficult question, and every time a tragedy happens, every time our heart is broken, every time we lose somebody who we sincerely care about, the first question many of us ask is, why, God? Why did you do that? My uh, my dad, actually, uh, who passed away a few years ago at uh, the ripe age of 92, mm -hmm. he always, and he was a godly man, and he, every time there's a question like this that would come up, why did God do this? And his answer was always this, why not? It's like God's sovereign plan is way beyond what humans can understand at times. We may not 
agree with even with what God did, but in the end, it's like God has a sovereign plan, a sovereign purpose, and everything is being done for his glory, regardless if it's hard for us to understand or not. Mm. I'm reminded of Psalm 116 when uh, the psalmist said in, in a struggle for his life, uh, he said, precious is the home going of the saints uh, and, and their death. And l- God watches. I mean, not only does he get glory in our lives, but he gets glory in our death also. And thank you so much for being a part of our program. I'm looking forward to being here with you this weekend. We're going to be in Union Grove uh, at the Union Grove Baptist Church three times on Sunday morning. Big dinner. Uh, People can come if you're in the Wisconsin area. But uh, why is it important that we teach Bible prophecy in our churches today? Well, Jimmy, I, 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 of course, I loved your dad and I love you equally. And I'm so happy that you're going to be here at Unigrove Baptist Church at 9, 10, 45, and 6 p.m. And as you said, we're going to have a, a big feast here the church is going to put on after your second message. So we're just very excited to have it. Why? Because we're finding across the country, and uh, 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 the statistic has come out that approximately 60% of Bible-believing churches are now leaving the literal interpretation of Scripture. They're rejecting the distinctive difference between Israel and the church. Uh, The concept that your dad was uh, uh, constantly pushing, the rapture of the church, when Jesus Christ comes to take the dead and alive in Christ home, that is being basically annihilated in a great percentage of churches. So having you here is an absolute treat. It's an absolute necessity that we get people back to understanding the Word of God rightly divided. 2 Timothy 2.15 commands us to study the Word of God. Everything in the scriptures is not so simple as Jesus loves me, this I know. The Bible is 66 books, a thousand different prophecies, 500 already fulfilled as specifically stated by the Lord, meaning 500 more are yet to be fulfilled as exactly as stated. And Jimmy, when you come here this Sunday, October 24th, uh, to preach the Word of God, we need to hear what God is going to do in this very, very troubled world. Thank you, Dr. Schmidt. And uh, I look forward to being here with you, and we invite others to come. You know, Prophecy Today Weekend is a program where we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. We do that so that we might understand the times in which we're living. And we also do that so that we might live a pure, productive, holy life in an unholy world. Thank you for joining with us this weekend. You know, after everything that we've heard and seen again, I have to say the rapture could happen today. So let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.